Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. Welcome to Stand Strong in the Word. Jason Jimenez here. I'm so glad you guys tune in to Stand Strong in the Word. You know, I'm excited that throughout our podcast, we're going to be teaching you guys uh, a chronological understanding of the Bible. And so we're starting with the Gospels. And that's just a thrill to me because through my years of pastoring and, and, and being a Bible teacher and teaching in so many different uh, arenas around the world, I am so excited to be just teaching through the Bible and not just taking the books in the order in which they occur and are laid out within the English uh, translation of the Bible, but taking a chronological, historical approach to the Bible. And that's important because when you understand why things happened a certain way in the order in which they, the order of the events, right, which they took place, it gives us more significance. It gives us a better understanding of certain things, why Jesus taught when he taught, the way that he taught, to whom he taught, etc. So last podcast, we got into the intertestamental period. And that was important because it really sets the stage. Because you go from Malachi to Matthew, according to the English Bible again, and you, you're kind of just like, okay, well, there's these Pharisees, Sadducees, there's synagogues. You know, how did this all occur? All of a sudden, the Romans are in power. That wasn't the case when we are finishing the book of Malachi. So if you haven't listened to that podcast, I highly recommend that you do it to kind of give us perspective as we're being introduced into the Gospels. Today's podcast is really just giving a survey or an introduction to the Gospel accounts. And so I want to just start off by looking at Luke chapter 1 because he really kind of sets the stage uh, and really for all the Gospels, even though in a minute I'm going to be showing you guys the order in which the Gospels occurred. So when, when Luke was tasked to uncover or discover at the same time some, some of the events and the life and teachings of Jesus, uh, he said some very significant and powerful words in Luke chapter 1. He says in verse 1 of Luke 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Now, let's just pause real quickly. I believe that there was two other books prior to Luke, uh, the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew. So I believe in, in, to, to, to the degree in which he's laying this out to compile a narrative, I believe he's referring to other biographies of Jesus, Mark and Matthew specifically right there. He goes on to say in verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. He's stressing that point again. Now you might say, well, okay, if Jason, if Mark was the first gospel that was written, but yet he wasn't a disciple, he says being eyewitnesses, what did Mark actually witness? Well, here's what's interesting. You know, Peter never wrote a gospel. He wrote epistles. Now some historically speaking in the Gnostic world were competing with these gospels as the early church under Roman rule was expanding. They said that there was a gospel of Peter, but we don't claim that to be inspired document of scripture. We do believe that John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark, got his accounts from not only Peter, but he also was able to get information from from others, uh, 
possibly including Paul, who got a lot of his information, as we were, as you see in Galatians chapter 1, that he spent over three years investigating things after he came to Christ on the road to Damascus. So John was a reliable source because he got his information from eyewitnesses, and also, Luke states here, ministers of the word. Now that's a qualification. He's referring to apostles, people that God had called through Christ to declare the gospel um, as the church was, um, basically as the church started in Acts chapter 2. So then he says in verse 3, it says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So Theophilus, we don't know much about him, historically speaking, but enough is stated that he obviously was a follower. He probably had a home church. He helped fund uh, Luke's ability to go research and to give this orderly account, as he writes here. And then it says in verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is a translation of a Greek noun, eugelion. Now, eugelion in the Greek, in this Greek noun, it occurs over 76 times, and it just really translated into the English as good news. Now, the verb eugelizo occurs 500, or excuse me, 54 times, and so in the verb sense of it. It just means to bring or announce the good news. So when you take these 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 words, the noun in the verb of eugelion in the Greek, uh, we we it's derived from an original word called uh, angelos or a messenger, where we get the word angel from. So in the classic Greek, eugelios was one who brought a message of victory, or not just a, a message of victory, but oftentimes even a political or personal news that brings joy with it. So as the messenger comes and delivers a message and it brings joy to the audience, that was referred to as an angelos, a messenger of good news. So now in addition to uh, this eugelion, when you take the middle voice form of the verb, and now it's a little complicated, but I'm just trying to expand a little bit so you have a proper meaning and understanding of how the gospel is used throughout the gospel accounts. So let's take a few passages of scriptures that really kind of expounds on this eugelion uh, uh, term that's being used as a, again, as a technical term for uh, the message of victory that brings out joy. So that's important to understand because notice Paul, one of his first letters that he wrote early on in his ministry is 1 Corinthians. In chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes these words. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Elsewhere in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it writes, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and brought and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. 
So that is the message of joy, one of victory. And we have these messengers that came from the writer of Hebrews and certainly the the Apostle Paul himself writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. And of course, beyond these chapters, particularly in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he, he elaborates on this whole message of victory that Christ not only came, overcame sin and death, uh, who is publicly crucified, who is publicly humiliated, but he overcomes sin and death, and he is resurrected, and he appears to his disciples, and he gives them the Great Commission, and he is seated at the right-hand side of God, as we're told in Hebrews chapter 1. That is a glorious picture of the mighty power of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. So 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, and Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, are great passages of scriptures that kind of really detail and elaborate on the gospels. So one of the things, and I don't know if you're like this, but you kind of look at something sometimes and you wonder, what's the purpose, you know, we all, you know, whether it's, you know, what's the purpose of buying this thing or what's the purpose of going over here and what's the purpose of doing this or doing that, whatever the case may be. And, and again, those are valid uh, questions sometimes is what is the value, if you will, of doing X and such, you know? And so we have to look at the purpose of the gospels. Now, obviously, as a follower of Jesus Christ, we certainly know the value of the of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But when we're kind of looking at this chronological order, what's significant about the placement of the Gospels? Now, we got to remember, you know, we have Malachi, and that's it. That's the end. And then we're introduced to Jesus. So right off the bat, we understand right away the purpose of the Gospels is to offer historical and a factual record of the life some of the teachings, the death, the public humiliation, remember, of, the, uh, of Jesus on the cross, his death and burial, and as well as his glorious resurrection. That's the purpose of the Gospels. So now we have four Gospels. Now with four Gospels, what four Gospels does is it gives us multiple witnesses and varied perspectives that when you piece Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all together, we get a very good picture of the events, stories, and teachings of Jesus. Because think about it, all that we really know of Jesus is in these four Gospels. Now, there's some that's elaborated on his teachings and trying to give us proper theology from the Gospels within the epistles, right? And so there's that. But when it comes to his life, we have these four. So, I mean, if you think about it, how much then do we really know about the Gospels? And that's why I think my brothers and sisters, that it's so important to get a chronological order, to put things in the proper perspective of how Jesus lived his life in the order in which he lived it. Now, when you look at the dating of the Gospels, this is important. I don't have time to elaborate on a lot of kind of stuff. So there's a classic book that InterVarsity Press published in 1983 by a premier scholar by the name of F.F. F. Bruce. He wrote a book called The New Testament Documents. Are they reliable? Okay, and there's many editions of that book, so I just highly recommend that book. But here's the here's the order in which most reputable scholars place uh, the books and the proper order in which they came out. Mark was written possibly in the early 50s. Now Mark was written to Romans, and the portrait here of the book of Mark or the Gospel of Mark is of Christ as a lowly servant. So he introduces, introduces to the Romans. I mean, Romans are victorious, but he was showing them that 
this, the, the Messiah, our Messiah, was this lowly servant. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Mark was in the 50s. Shortly after that, Matthew writes his account in the early to mid-60s. And this was written to Jews. And the portrait here is of Christ as the King Messiah. So Matthew is representing Jesus throughout his gospel account as the true and living king. And there's now Luke, who comes roughly around the same time, written to Hellenists, and the portion of Christ is to the Son of Man. And then finally, of course, you have John, was written roughly around the 80s, and was written to the Greek world. And the portrait here is Jesus as the Son of God. So you notice Mark written to Romans, Matthew written to Jews, Luke written to Hellenists, John written to the Greek worlds, and you see the portraits from a lowly servant to King Messiah, to the Son of Man, to the Son of God. It's extraordinary. So I just encourage you as, you're, as you kind of divide up the four gospel accounts that you understand who they're written to and the portrait that the writer, Mark, Matthew, Luke, or John perhaps, details and how they're going to display and talk about Jesus. That's very important. Now, another thing that's kind of important to point out is that Mark and Matthew and Luke oftentimes seem like they're working together more so than John. Again, not contradicting each other, but certainly kind of there's this roadmap of how they approach the life teachings of Jesus Christ. These are known as the Synoptic Gospels. So Mark, Matthew, and Luke are known as the Synoptic Gospels. You say, what on earth does that mean? It just simply means viewing together. Viewing together. So here's what's cool about Mark, Matthew, and Luke. They have a harmony, okay, between the three of them. There are commonalities uh, or complementary details that they share. And what it does is that it, it helps paint a picture of Jesus, his life, where he went, why he went there. So what we're going to be doing as we're going to be teaching through the gospel accounts, we're going to be uh, flipping back and forth with the various different um, events and interactions that Jesus had. That way we can paint a, a better picture of what actually occurred. Now, real quickly, as I'm ending this podcast, I think it is important and this is just my apologetic side, uh, is where I think it's um, valid to uh, explain to some um, level of degree the reliability of the Gospels. And so what I'm going to do real quickly, just for your understanding, and and hopefully this will help. Um, Again, I've written a lot of books. Uh, We have a Q&A book, The Bible's Answers to 100 of Life's Biggest Questions. I wrote with Dr. Norman Geiser, the Baker Books published uh, a few years back for us that kind of gives a a better understanding uh, of the gospel accounts and their their reliability. But I want to give you just the the internal test and the external test, the internal test and the external test. Now, what I mean by that is there was an historical event that happened in AD 70, when the Romans, Titus at the time was the general, he came in there and he ransacked and destroyed Jerusalem as it was prophesied by Jesus shortly before that. Now, there was no mentioning of that event whatsoever within the Gospels. The only mentioning that we have is that Jesus actually, as he gets into the Olivet Discourse, mentions that these the, the walls, the, the temple itself, would be destroyed. Um, and so that, that's a, what we would refer to as an internal test, is that 
you would think that the Jews would mention the destruction of the temple, but yet there's no mentioning of that within the gospel accounts. So that's important to understand because it says that before AD 70, uh, all the gospels were written. And so again, when you go back to the gospel of John, however, some people think that it was factored in within the, the mid to late 80s. I tend to think that it's earlier there because of this internal test of the destruction of the temple, and there was no mentioning of that. Well, now there's also what's known as the external test. And what that means is that you take all the copies, these manuscripts that have been copied through uh, the centuries of time, and, and collect them together and see how accurate, how consistent were these copies to what we would refer to as the original, or some refer to as autographs. Now, I just want to list a few things, and again, I just always encourage you guys to dig deeper if you can, because I'm limited with the time that I can really have, but this is an opportunity just and through this introduction to the Gospels to give us a little bit more insight. So hopefully this will be helpful. So now, when you look at the external test, let's look at a few manuscripts or papyri that we have. Papyri or papyrus was certain material that was written uh, that, that they use as, as, as uh, material that we would write things down. So a lot of the manuscripts that we have from the Old Testament and even into the New Testament was written on papyrus. So one of the things that we have that was written around 8250, okay, so shortly after uh, the, the New Testament was written, was known as the Chester Beatty papyri. It has most of the New Testament writings. Another one that we have is known as the Bodmer Papyri, about 8200. It contains most of John. The Rylands Papyri, in about 8130, was discovered in Egypt. It contains fragments of the Gospel of John. Now, there was an apostolic father by the name of Clement of Rome. Uh, he was a man that lived uh, during the time in which uh, John the Apostle was still living. And he sends a letter to Corinth in about 8095, and he's referencing all four Gospels to the church. Well, if he's living around the same time as John, the apostle, and he's referencing the four Gospels to Corinth that has received letters from the apostle Paul, who gave accounts of the life of Jesus, and traveled with people like John Mark, who wrote the first account of Jesus in, in the Gospel of Mark, I think that's that's pretty amazing attestation to the biographies of Jesus Christ. And so he's referring now to these Gospels, which means that they were circulating in the early church before AD 100. Now, not only was there Clement of Rome that was writing about um, the Gospel accounts, but Agonatius in 115, he quotes from the Gospels and other New Testament writings, along with Polycarp, who was a pupil of the Apostle John. So that is uh, what we call the external test of seeing things outside of the Gospels that are giving credence to the Gospel accounts. Now, another thing that we cannot overlook is the oral tradition of the Jewish people. They understood and knew and memorized so much of the Old Testament as well as the teachings of Jesus. And the oral tradition cannot be overlooked. We cannot, and I have to make a disclaimer here because... I'll get into debates as an apologist with people that are trying to discredit the Bible and say that it's not reliable by saying, you know, how on earth can can you recall certain things? Can you remember every single thing that certain people said in conversation? Okay, first off, that's apples and oranges comparison. When rabbis and people that were highly respected and highly regarded as a spiritual leader 
told stories. It was staying consistent to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Psalm 73. You told the stories of how God led his people out of Egypt and the way that you told them had been done through centuries. And so it was a way and a style of teaching the next generation from fathers to rabbis to their people, to their family, to preserve not just the story but the meaning in it that explained their faith as Jews. So the oral tradition is unlike what we understand in a Western mind. And finally, another thing just to make mention when we're talking about the reliability of the Gospels is, is a key word is called transmission. Transmission. Now there's two uh, amazing historian people by the name of Westcott and Hort. When they took a lot of these copies a lot of these manuscripts of the New Testament, and they compare them through the centuries in which we have them, from early on when the church was started, thousands of years, a few thousand years later removed, they found that the copies that we have, no matter where they were discovered around the world, a 98.33% accurate to the original. Now, another guy by the name of A.T. Robertson, not a Christian, by the way, but he gave a figure of 99% accuracy to the original. As historian Sir Frederick Kenyon assures, quote, he says, the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. Both the authenticity and general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be, may be regarded as finally established, end quote. So we, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, and as you read through the amazing and rich and powerful teachings of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can know with great certainty that the gospel accounts are reliable. Which leads me to this final point as I'm closing out right now. And it's regarding these false gospels. Now, we have to remember that Paul the Apostle, even in his time, there were circulating false teachings about Jesus. And in Galatians chapter 1, this was his first epistle that he wrote in the 40s. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That was from the Apostle Paul. So they had false gospels in his time, and certainly as all the apostles died off, and you had the apostolic fathers, and they died off, you started to have gospels of Thomas, gospels of Mary, gospel of Peter, gospel of Philip, and others um, that I can't mention in this time. So there are other gospels supposedly that talk about the life and teaching of Jesus Christ, but those are false gospels. So I want you to make I want you to be aware of those things because you're going to get a lot of the skeptics and you get a lot of the atheist people you're going to get a lot of people like Dr. Bart Ehrman who thinks he's a New Testament scholar and he knows um, 
all about the Gospels and the Epistles and the writings of the Apostles and you don't, he's going to throw these things in the mix and say that they're as reliable, if not more so, than what you and I refer to the Gospels in the New Testament. So this was a quick introduction to the Gospels. Hopefully it gets things in perspective. And I can't wait to dive in to Matthew chapter 1 on our next podcast. God bless you guys and have a great day in the Lord. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at StandStrongMinistries.org. Thank you for listening, and keep standing strong in the Word of God.